Hello and welcome to the Knowledge Without College podcast. This is your host, Patrick Butler, and today I have an incredible episode to share with you. I just had the pleasure of speaking with a gentleman named Louis Sahoyas. Louis has had an unbelievable, a truly remarkable career up until this point. He started at the age of 23 as a photographer for National Geographic, where he did some unbelievable work there. Uh, later moving to Fortune Magazine, where he had the opportunity to photograph and interact with uh, some amazing people, including Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, Sam Walton, Donald Trump, Warren Buffett, Larry Ellison, Andrew Grove, and many more. Uh, in 2005, he created the Oceanic Preservation Society, a nonprofit group that I recommend you check out. Uh, in 2009, he pivoted his career towards filmmaking with his first film uh, and documentary, which won the Academy Award uh, called The Cove and has since become the most awarded documentary ever, which is pretty amazing. Uh, following that, he created a couple other films, including or directed a couple other films, including Racing Extinction and The Game Changers, which is still currently on Netflix and uh, blowing away all sorts of numbers. So in this conversation, we covered a wide range of topics. Uh, I could ask Louis questions all day long. He's had some unbelievable experiences and tons of great knowledge to share. So I know you're going to love this conversation and get a ton out of it. So please, without any further delay, enjoy my conversation with Louis Sahoyas. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's truly an honor to have you on the show. Oh, it's an honor to be here. Thanks. So uh, to begin, or maybe for the audience out there who is not as familiar with your work, or maybe they don't you know, uh, know it offhand, could, would you mind describing a little bit about your background, what you've, uh, some of your amazing accomplishments? <laughs> um, well, I started out as a, you know, right out of, I know your, your name of your podcast is, uh, is, it's uh, about, you know, knowledge without college. And, you know, I, I went to college, but I didn't graduate. I got hired uh, by my favorite employer right out of, out of college, um, National Geographic. I, I quit with about, in my, my head, it was just three credits left in political science. But, you know, I wanted, back then I wanted to, I was, I love photography. I loved art growing up and photography is like sort of a, an easy way to do art, you know, it's, and that's how I look at it. But it's also, um, not just art, but it's a way to use art to create social change. That was my interest in working for National Geographic. You know, you have this huge, well, at least back then, you had a huge base of um, subscribers, about 11 million people at that point, and about four people saw each subscription. So about 44 million people back then, this is 1980, saw the magazine every time it got published. And, um, you know, back then, you had a, you know, a kid growing up my age, let's say in the in the early '60s, you either wanted to be an astronaut or a photographer for National Geographic, 
and you had better odds of being an astronaut because geographic hiring your people. But the time that they hired me out of school, I was the first new photographer that they hired in about 11 years. So I had my dream job. So I didn't, you know, I didn't necessarily love college and, uh, you know, the, the degree wasn't nearly as important to me as um, doing what I wanted to do. And um, so I started to uh, say, I worked for National Geographic for about eight, over the course of about 18 years, did about a, a dozen assignments for them. And the first assignment I did back then was, uh, it was a story I proposed on garbage. And back in 1980, there was only one mandatory recycling program in America. And I was like, you know, other cultures around the world that I read about, they, you know, they protect the garbage with guards. It was so valuable. Mm -hmm. All the resources that people, you know, didn't care to, you know, recycle, but they would, at the dump, they'd recycle them. And it was worth quite a bit. In fact, the, the working title for that article I proposed back in 1980 was called Urban Ore. Because the idea that you could recycle and mine stuff out of the garbage, and of course, um, like I said, only one mandatory recycling program. But after that was published, it was a cover story in April of 1983. It took about you know a year to do that story. Recycling began to take off, and, you know, not just because of that article that we did, but because you know there was a lot of momentum. We became part of this chorus of environmentalists trying to push the envelope, and it certainly helped that you know, one of the most popular magazines in the world had it on their cover and uh, people started to look at it differently because um, it's a very well-respected magazine, not just photographically, but uh, journalistically. And I realized then that, you know, I knew through my, I used to work at newspapers prior to that. I started when I was about 15, but I, I saw that, you know, individual pictures could, you know, become well-known in a community. But when you're working at scale, something else happens. You're basically changing culture at scale. And um, it wasn't the power of that that excited me. It's just that, you know, as, as a 20-year-old, you're looking at the world and thinking, the world's pretty screwed up. And you think, you know, maybe a little bit um, naively and uh, inflated sense of self that you think that you can, you can change things. But the, the reality is when you're working for a big, huge you know, uh, media concern like National Geographic that has a huge base, you can affect change, you can affect culture. And I realized that that, you know, is, it was true that you could do that art, the stuff that I love to do, and, and actually make these small incremental changes that have a long-term effect on culture. And that was, uh, I wouldn't say it was heady, it was just to realize that there's a lot of, you know, you Pictures can be used to entertain, you know, sort of satisfy the soul in a lot of way, but they can also move culture. And that was a lot of my interest and wanted to, to work for National Geographic was trying to do that kind of work. That's truly incredible, uh, especially given the time uh, and placing of, you know, you starting that career. Again, like you mentioned, you know, 11 million subscriptions, 44 million people would view that. Um, and to have the opportunity to go on projects that, you know, to create the social change that you wanted to at such a young age must have been truly remarkable. I mean, very, like very few people have ever had such an opportunity. And, uh, you know, one phrase I always love is, is politics is downstream from culture. So, you know, in, in that situation, if you're able to nudge the culture a little bit, um, you know, in that direction, it can make a huge difference over time politically. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I got to, you know, remember too, like a lot of my friends were at that point were in journalism. So everybody around me was kind of doing aspects of that. Uh, but I, I started working with a small group of photographers. There's about a half a dozen of us that were based out of New York. It was called Contact Press Images, about a half a dozen of us. And most of us were uh, war photographers. And um, I wasn't, but there was a, it was also Annie Leibovitz, who was a you know a very famous celebrity photographer. Um, but we were all doing you know people were going off to far flung parts of the world, uh, filming conflicts. So a lot of my people were you know, people that I hung out with, with were in war zones and filming heads of states. And um, Annie Leibovitz was filming like everybody, everybody that was. Mm -hmm. This was that was part of the mix. It wasn't like I was special. It was just like I was just one of a, a bunch of people doing um, that kind of work. Um, and so you compared yourself to them. It wasn't like I, I didn't feel above or beyond everybody, and still don't. I just feel like we're part, we just we have a unique opportunity to use a gift. Um, in my case, it was photography, and. Uh, to try to change things, but people were doing it. Everybody was doing it, and then, you know they they still are doing it. You know, but I I at one point um, I made a switch um, from National Geographic. I started working for Fortune magazine. It seems like an odd twist, you know, to go from National Geographic to Fortune. But I was always interested in business, and they gave me an opportunity to to meet some of the most successful people in the world. You know, and at, at one point, I'd, I'd photographed for the cover of, so I think, seven out of the 10 richest people in the world. And, you know, when I was growing up in, in Iowa, I, you know, it's hard to know what kind of socioeconomic status we had back then, but it wasn't, you know, we're somewhere between middle and lower class, I guess. You know, when you looked at it, my mom was a single mom. My dad died when I was pretty young. So we didn't have a lot of wealth, but we, when my dad was around, I remember there was a lot of arguments about money. I was always thinking as a kid, if we could just have the money, then we'd be happy. And so I, I worked for a lot of my life thinking that money was, was a key to some sort of happiness. And then that got quickly shattered working at Fortune magazine. You know, just the title of the magazine says it all, right? You're celebrating people's fortune. But what I realized at the top, people, some people are, are, you know, are, are obviously concerned about wealth and power. But the really successful people, they're really interested, like I was, in changing culture. The, it was just a, uh, their success, the financial success was just the collateral of doing what they love to do. Um, and one of the, uh, when I was working at National Geographic, one of the last stories I did was on the information revolution. This is 1993. So you, you have to remember, this is like really pre-internet. Uh, and the, the man who was, or the, the guy, the person who, uh, my um, generation was looking up to back then wasn't necessarily Steve Jobs. It was a guy by the name of Jim Clark. Jim Clark uh, had built the Apple computer of its day. It was called Silicon Graphics. Uh, the high-end graphics computers were all done with his computers. Jurassic Park was made with his computers. Uh, you know, it, he, the, uh, what was unique about that computer at that time is that Jim and his colleagues at Stanford University, where he taught, invented something called the 3D graphics engine, which was the way that you could imagine the world in three dimensional dimensions in real time on a computer. So gaming where you, you know, you could see your movements react in real time, that you could create CAD CAM programs, three dimensional programs that could, you know, 
machines could design the world in 3D. That was that came out of his brain, out of his lab at Stanford University. The day he quit that, uh, he started Netscape, the first commercial internet browser. And um, then he created a company called WebMD. And uh, it was actually Healthy Hunt, and then he, he, they bought up WebMD, but they, they used the name because it was a better name. Uh, brilliant guy. I wanted to photograph him for the uh, information revolution story for Geographic, but back then he was a bit of a rock star and a little bit too hard to reach even, so Geographic, I couldn't penetrate getting access to him. But when I worked at um, Fortune magazine, uh, one of the, I want to say one of the first assignments I had was to photograph Jim. He had built, you know, based on his Netscape earnings, he had built this boat that had the world's tallest mast. It was being put in in Holland. Um, photographed him at the top of the mast in a sort of a rainy day and I went up to the very top and I'm scared of heights but I photographed him st on, on the last spreader the top spreader and he's standing there in a rain jacket smoking a Cohiba cigar and uh, we went you know we had a lot of fun because um, we were both scared of heights and we both went up <laughs> that night and at some bar in Amsterdam and he said uh, Louis would you teach me how to be a good photographer because he was starting a new business called Shutterfly and I said Jim I'll teach you how to be a a, a great photographer if you teach me how to be a billionaire and um it, basically he you know he picked me up i was living in boulder colorado at that point and he would pick me up on his golf stream and we would fly around the world and take pictures and he, we both loved to dive and so we were taking pictures underwater and jim doesn't do anything half-ass he would you know he was looking at the trying out all the, all the available uh cameras of the day and saying these things are garbage you know and i said well you mean he put a Hasselblad underwater and the lenses were awful for it and so he built for us the best camera ever made you know he didn't stop at like difficult he didn't stop because uh, you know money got in the way he just he just did what he wanted to do which was to create as, as close to perfection as he could so he built a couple of these cameras with the best you know the best um, underwater with the best mechanics, the best lens. He built a dome port for it that, you know, would cost you about to a quarter of a million dollars if you had to build one of them. He had six of them made. And we would go around the world and take pictures. And about, oh, I don't know. I mean, as we, we dove and took pictures for, I don't know, 10 or 12 years. And every time we went back to the same place, the same dive place, we would see this degradation go on. Um, it's called like a shifting baseline. There's a name for it now, but you know, every uh, successive generation adapts to the diminishment caused by the one previous to it. So you go to a dive site and there would be, you know, over a 10 year period, you'd notice less fish, even though it's the same time of year that the reefs were degraded. Uh, we came back up from a dive in the Galapagos it was like our third time there. And the, there was fishermen illegally fishing in a Marine sanctuary. And he said, somebody should do something about this. I said, uh, well, how about you and I? And um, he said, what do you mean? I said, well, we'll use your money in my eye and we'll make films. And we started this organization called the Oceanic Preservation Society, OPS. It's a nonprofit organization. And um, the first you know, project we were going to do was a, a film about ocean degradation. And I, you know, now I'm shifting careers, right? So I'm going, I'm transitioning from a still photographer to a filmmaker and I had no business being in the film business really by the outside world because I'd never made a film before, but I'm feeling like excited and you know, Jim's a successful guy. Like when John F. Kennedy called, when, he, when Jim was in college, he was working for Boeing 
um, this is in the early 1960s, when he's working on the, the rocket program up at Boeing. And he's really just a lowly computer uh, assistant. So the, the scientists would design a new formula for the Saturn V rocket engines. They would, um, back then all the data was transferred, not on floppy drives or, or disks. They were all done on, you know, pieces of paper with punch, punch holes in them. There were cards. And Jim's job was to shuffle all these uh, programs at night when people weren't working into the computer. And the the block, the, the real holdup was his was his position. They, the computers weren't fast enough to process all the data that was coming from all these scientists. When John F. Kennedy called to put an American on the moon by the end of the decade, Jim's working the night shift up at Boeing. He says, "This isn't going to happen. You know, it's the problems right here where I'm working." And he, so he got permission from his boss to uh, get a new computer, sped up the computers by 20-fold and made it happen. So this is, I'm you know, now my best friend. You know, I'm not just working with Jim. He's my best friend. I'm, I'm looking in awe of how he achieved success. And ba really, ba when I said, how about you and I, I'm thinking with his gumption with his tenaciousness and in my drive we could we maybe we can achieve something but like i said i had no track record at all but we're down in the caribbean at this point uh, we're on vacation with our families in the caribbean and my son starts playing on the beach with another kid and it happens to be steven spielberg's kid and uh, spielberg he's, he's on vacation with his whole family and i'm on the boat with my family and jim's with his and uh spielberg you know uh, spielberg's kid is staying overnight to, to stay with us and spielberg says, wants to come over and, and, and meet jim and i he built like i said jurassic park on jim's com uh, computers and he wants to meet the father of his uh son's new friend and uh when i had spielberg alone i said uh mr spielberg do you have any advice for a first-time filmmaker and he said, yeah, never make a movie involving boats or animals. <laughs> and this is based on his experience of creating Jaws, which was, you know, a lot of boats and a lot of animals. And, um, you know, it almost bankrupt him. You know, he, I think he did about a month of filming because mm -hmm. you're on a boat, the light changes, you have to do the reverse. Nothing matches because the sun is going behind a cloud and, you know, you're giving everybody seasickness as us in the audience because the boat's moving and, you know, I'm a little bit horrified because like, you know, I'm starting the Oceanic Preservation Society. Yes. It's going to involve a lot of boats or animals. And the first film that uh, Jim and I do and our, our team is called The Cove, which involved a lot of boats and animals. And The Cove is about, uh, to people out there that haven't seen it, you can, you can see it on Amazon. Um, it's, a, it's a film about dolphin hunting in Japan. And at the point, I remember, you know, Jim had tasked me with trying to do a film about ocean preservation, like what's going on, trying to, you know, trying to create a film based on what we were seeing experientially with the de degradation of the oceans. And um, I was going around to marine mammal conferences all over the country, trying to, you know, meet the experts. Same thing I did at Geographic, where I do a lot of research. And at one of these these conferences of cetaceans, you know, these are small whales and, and dolphins. There's, a, there's about 2,000 of the world's top scientists and researchers talking about dolphins and whales. And <clears throat> this is like a, a week-long program of mainly PhDs talking about, you know, very narrow bands of um, 
of inquiry into cetaceans. And uh, this is after a week of this, of like 15 to 20 minute, minute poster sessions. Um, on a Saturday night, Rick O'Berry, the guy that trained Flipper, was supposed to be giving a, a popular presentation on, on video night. And at the last minute, they wouldn't let him talk. And I started doing some inquiry, and they said, well, he's going he, he to talk about dolphin hunting in Japan. In Japan, in Japan they, they eat dolphins, and they capture them for the captive dolphin market. But the main financer of the conference that we're at was the Hubs Research Institute, which is the research arm of SeaWorld. And so they wouldn't, wow. they wouldn't let him talk. And so I started doing some talking, and um, I just called up Rick, and uh, he said, yeah, it all happens in this little town in Taiji. Do you want to come? And I'm going next week. And I said, well, you go, and I'll catch up with you. And what I didn't tell him was I did a three-day crash course on how to make a film. <laughs> uh, a local producer, you know, you know, way more experienced than us, but he really, you know, in retrospect, wasn't, you know, that you know, wasn't the, the caliber of the, you know, that we probably needed, but we all went over to Taiji uh, about a week later, uh, Taiji, Japan, where they captured these, the, the dolphins. And, you know, what I saw was like, journalistically, it was an incredible story. You have this guy, Rickleberry was a guy that captured and trained the five female dolphins that collectively played the part of Flipper, a tele popular television series when I was a kid. Basically, the anthropomorphized and, and get it to do tricks and you know they sort of hu humanize this dolphin and um rick was the trainer for that for i don't know i think it was at least seven years where he lived at this lagoon in florida just right off the sea world property or sorry the um uh it wasn't sea world it's uh what's the other um organization down there i'll think of it as in a second lolita's there um but it's a little sea world type um, yeah uh, type that he lived on the property, but this lagoon with you know the the primary dolphin that that played the part of Flipper, and so he had this ex Sea World trainer, and then he what well, something happened that was really incredible. Like I said, there's five female dolphins that collectively played the part of that one animal, but there's one animal that was really the the you know the iconic Flipper in everybody's mind. And that was a, a dolphin that they called Kathy, and then after the Flipper TV series stopped. Um, basically, the dolphins were seen as prop. They went back to the uh, the sea aquarium in, in Florida, and Rick uh, and these animals get attached to the trainers. And mm -hmm. Kathy, really, you know, uh, Rick heard that Kathy was really depressed. He went to the pool to you know to to see her, and the way he describes it is that she swam up into his arms, looked at him in the eyes, and swam down to the bottom of the tank and didn't take another breath. That's basically killed itself. And you have to understand, like Rick says in the film, that you know, dolphins are not automatic air breathers. Every breath they take is a conscious effort. So it decided right there to, whatever you want to say, express its grief, but it basically killed itself in front of Rick to express its grief. And right then he decided that he was going to, you know, now remember, Rick didn't just capture these dolphins, he was capturing them for other markets, for other yep. So he went back and tried to release to, to to go into the pens of all the dolphins he, ca he captured and release them because he had you know realized that these animals are a lot more intelligent and sentient than he realized, and that started him on this whole quest where he's you know he spent ten years building up that business the next thirty five years trying to uh, to tear it down, and so now I meet him and he's in in this little town called Taiji. And he's trying to get the world to pay attention to this place where they kill more dolphins than any other place in the world. They're killing about, you know, 
In, in, all, in all of Japan, they were killing about 23,000 dolphins and porpoises every year for human consumption. Wow. And most of the, the dolphins that you see in China, Japan, the Middle East, Russia, come from this little town. So these, uh, there's about a dozen boats that go out, you know, actually they're out, probably out right now. They, they go out, I think it's between uh, September and um, March every year. And they, they're hunting dolphins to both to eat and for this captive dolphin market, which is, it's being shut down because of the film now and because of another great film that was called uh, Blackfish. But in, in parts of the world like China, there's, you know, there's no, shows no signs of dolphinarium slowing down. Yep. There's this, you know, this pretty, you know, at that point he's like, I don't know, 75, 80 years old. And he's trying to get the world to pay attention to this, this story. And the, the funny thing is you go around the town, it looks like they have signs out around in English that say, this is in Taiji, Japan. We love dolphins. There's, you know, there's these great, beautiful um, uh, reliefs of dolphins, you know, art in the sidewalks. There's a, a dolphin and whale museum. The whole town has the outward appearance that they love dolphins and whales. Uh, but, you know, there's a secret cove that's actually right next to the, the, the dolphin museum where they kill more dolphins than other, any other place in the world. And, and then you have Rick, you know, who basically started this industry trying to get the world to pay attention to it so it can stop. And I, you know, I, at that, at one point I remember thinking, well, here's a great way to tell this really big story. You know, there's a, a poet, William Blake, Blake said to, to see the world in a grain of sand. And I thought, well, you can see the ocean by looking at this cove. You can, you know, the, the, one of the um, excuses the dolphin uh, hunters use to, to kill the dolphins is because they claim that they're eating too many fish. Mammal loophole. And, yeah. And, um, and they're also, you know, dolphins are poisonous, you know, because there's, there's so many pollutants out in the, in the oceans right now. Um, mercury, cadmium, lead, lead, they all get bioaccumulated through the environment. There's about six tropic levels of the food chain from algae up to let's say dolphins and marlin and swordfish and the big animals and yeah. at, at each of those tropic levels you can basically add a zero another order of magnitude of pollution in those fish so from white pollock to the next species up the species that eat them the, uh, the, the bioaccumulation of toxins get magnified about tenfold so you know you add six zeros under that you got a million times more pollutants in swordfish than you do in algae the, um, uh, you know, you'd have to, it's, it's like 18, you have to consume like 18 tra uh, semi-trailers semi of algae to get what's equivalent of one pound of, you know, of uh, the pollutants. Wow. Word fifth. And, you know, because two, uh, dolphins are basically eating the big animals too. They're like the most toxic animals in the world. They're swimming toxic waste dumps. All the dolphin meat that's been tested in Japan has in the last 30 years has between five and 5,000 times more mercury than allowed by Japanese law, if it was a fish. But it's not, it's a mammal, of course. So it gets, you know, this mammal loophole you spoke of. So, um, you know, at that point we were there, they were trying to um, start a program where they were giving this, the meat away for free for school systems to get the school kids acclimated to the, the taste of dolphin. So the, the, all this is going on. So I realized we can talk. We can talk about pollution. We can talk about what we're doing to the oceans. We can talk about what we're doing to our, you know, our um, 
you know, our, our counterparts in the oceans, the, the dolphins and whales, they have, you know, people out there that don't know, they have at least as big of brains of us, if not, not maybe even bigger. They have more convolutions of mm-hmm. the, the gray matter, which allows for more neurons. So there's more connections there, which is a sign of intelligence. They have an extra lobe of the brain that we don't have. They have more spindle neurons that are associated with processing complex emotions. So these animals are very sophisticated. Just because we don't understand their language doesn't mean that they're not smart. They're communicating at a different level than we are. I'm not saying it's above or below or even equal, but it's just different. And it's, you know, if you just looked at it, if, if an alien creature came down and analyzed the brain of a human being, a dolphin, they would point to the dolphin as being the superior. You can look at us and say, oh, but we have computers and cars and blah, blah, blah. But that's one way to define intelligence. There's another way to define intelligence to say, how capable is that animal of dealing with its environment, living in its environment, coexisting in its environment? And by that, you know, know, we might have bigger brains, but look what we're doing to the environment. We're at the point where we're, you know, we're doing what no wild animal would do. We're following our own nest. Yeah. we're destroying the atmosphere. We're destroying the oceans. We're, you know, we're killing each other. And dolphins, and generally, you know, they're they really get along with most everything out there except for sharks, which is one of the predators against us. In fact, I remember when we were doing the cove, I was out in Rangaroa with our team, and we were trying to figure out. There's a these resident pods of dolphins that hang out. You know, resident pods means that there there's enough fish usually in that environment where they don't have to go out into the in, in forage in, in you know way out to sea or whatever the but so there's about three resident pods there and we were trying to interact with them you know and you, you find you come across these dolphins and you swim with them and they play with her for a little while they'll look at you and they find you entertaining but then they get bored and, and swim off and we had figured out that if we uh, had scooters we had you know uh, these really fast scooters that we could not keep up with them but it would entertain them and we could you know um, hang out with them for instead of like two or three minutes, like 10 or 15 before they got bored. Remember at one point we were hanging out with these dolphins and then they all swam off together. And, you know, you're there's sort of the sinking feeling like, Oh man, you know, you, it's like, you know, you're talking to somebody interesting and they just lose it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Boom, they're gone. And then uh, about 10 seconds later, we were diving with rebreathers. These are self, it's not scuba. It's like, which is self-contained underwater breathing apparatus because they're really noisy and basically scuba scares off everything. Rebreathers, you can you basically the only thing you hear down there is your own breath. You know, wow. bubbles really noisy, and you can you know dive through these populations of fish and dolphins and not scare them off with this really loud apparatus. But my buddy, you know, sort of grunts to me and he points to these dolphins that took off. And they had swam off into the deep. We could see them in the blue. And they were taking turns ramming this great hammerhead shark that was coming towards us. And this thing, wow. dolphins were big. They were probably about you know, maybe eight feet long and four or 500 pounds. And they're hitting this, this shark that's probably five, six times the mass. It must be like 18 feet long. It's huge because they look small in comparison to this hammerhead. And they were trying to push it away from us. And so- wow. And these dolphins, you know, in my, my I'm Greek, and uh, in ancient Greek culture, uh, dolphins were, it was a fine punishable by death to kill a dolphin because they were so, uh, they were legendary for saving sailors when, you know, during storms. 
And a lot of cultures revered dolphins as, you know, an animal that should be revered and respected. And here you have this other culture where they're killing them, they're eating them, they're um, subjecting them to, you know, to food deprivation to force them to do tricks for our, our amusement. It's a spectacle of dominance. Yeah. So my head, you know, as a, as a, as a, you know, not just a filmmaker, but just, you know, as a, somebody who is interested in writing, you think you have this very dramatic backdrop of, you know, this town that is professing to love animals. The guy that basically brought ca captivity to the popular market, trying to get the world to pay attention and he can't. And so, I, I realized that, you know, here's a way we could tell this, this big story by focusing on something that people can really relate to. This, this wonderful character, Rickleberry, trying to bring worldwide attention to this, this, this huge problem. And, you know, the Cove, you know, when we did that, we thought, well, this, if we could just make a dent in this problem, get people to know about it, then maybe we'll have done our job. Well, the film became the most, I mean, it sounds like I'm bragging, and, you know, keep in mind that it's not just me that did this film. We had wonderful producers, Paul Dupre Pressman and uh, Rick O'Berry. There's, you know, my, my buddies that helped me with this for the hundreds of people that worked on this, but it became the most winning documentary in history. It won about, you know, a hundred awards from Sundance to the, uh, the Academy Award. Remember at one point our, our distributor, uh, Roadside, was a subsidiary of Lionsgate. They called me up and said, you won the, the Golden Trailer Award. And, you know, at this point, I didn't know there were so many awards. So I said, well, they, they don't understand. This is like the, the marketing uh, award, you know, you're up against, you know, the Hurt Locker and Avatar and, you know, a lot of great films and you won it, you know, not just the documentary, but the, you know, the best trailer of the year. Yeah. And, uh, but what I was most proud of is that the film actually created change. At the time, like I said, they were killing about 23,000 dolphins from corpuses a year. I think in 2017, the last uh, year that I know about data that was recorded, uh, they killed about 1,610 total dolphins. Wow. So it's about a 93% drop. So, so in other words, your, your three-day crash course really paid off. <laughs> for dolphins and whales, it, it, it paid off in spades. Yeah, no, it, uh, it, it did incredible for that. And, you know, I think blackfish probably even, you know, if, if we were, you know, um, you know, introduce the world to this problem. They put, you know, started to put the nail on the, on the coffin for the problem. Um, that film is, you know, uh, about uh, Tillicum, you know, a dolphin. The, Blackfish is really about orcas. You know, it's yeah. a, an orca is, is, they're called killer whales, but they're really a large dolphin. They're the largest of the dolphin species. So they're essentially cousins in a way, right? Yeah. And there's never been a recorded case in human history ever of a of a orca killing a human being or a killer whale killing a human being. But this one animal that was taken away from its mother at about two years old um, has killed three, you know, been associated with the deaths of three trainers in its lifetime. Mm -hmm. Two trainers and one person that was, you know, thought it would be cool to sneak into uh, in SeaWorld and swim with a dolphin, you know, uh, late at night. But so... You know, basically, you have this, you know, this hugely intelligent animal being subjugated to do tricks for human amusement, you know, with spectacle yeah. dominance. And, you know, the, I'd say in the Western world, um, between those two films, it's been very successful about, you know, calling attention to the problem. Dolphinarians were shutting down all over Europe and America. SeaWorld is now, you know, forced to 
uh, stop doing their breeding program, stop you know, working with trainers in the water with these animals. There's a whole lot of, you know, and then I think by, um, you know, Mark Twain once said, you know, he would joke that, you know, I quit, I, I defected and the Confederacy fell. You know, people take way too much credit for, you know, these, you know, these big, big issues. And I think we can do that as a filmmaker. But I think, you know, again, I think the, the co-blackfish uh, became part of a chorus uh, that gave fuel to the animal rights movement and the environmental movement of um, realizing that these animals don't belong in captivity. And now you have circuses shutting out, you know, down all over the country because, you know, the, the, you know, animals don't do this, these kind of activities. Elephants don't, you know, go up on their haunches. They don't, you know, put their, their feet on their back because they like doing it. They do it because of bull hooks. From a very early age, they have these long hooks they use them at Ringling, Barnum and Bailey Circus when they were using them. They use them at circus acts all over the world. There are these long sticks with a big sharp hook at the end. These animals are brought up from a very young age. As soon as they're, you know, with their mothers, they start hooking them on the back of the heel to get them to do stuff. And they, they fear this hook more than anything. So in Cal here in California, they didn't ban elephants and circuses, they banned the bull hook. And of course, that means that these animals are not controllable because they, they won't have anything to do with you if uh, you know you're not um, you know if you're not causing pain and it's the same with the dolphin you know the dolphins are you know very intelligent self-aware creatures but you can't get them to do anything if you're you know not offering the reward of food and if you in, a, in America you know sea world it's, it's it's really food deprivation you know we have um, reports now that we know we got through freedom of information act and through uh discovery of lawsuits that um you know these you know, if you go to SeaWorld, they say all oh, these animals love to do that food is just you know they need to eat just like you need to eat but if you look at the data you know if an animal if a, if a dolphin uh isn't behaving if he's not performing well um the trainers notes to the owners uh, will say well you know this dolphin isn't performing well and they said have you tried uh, caloric reduction. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that's... we have a smoking gun that's going to come out in court cases pretty soon. Um, yeah. So these animals, you know, they're, you know, and then as people get more aware, as this information is out there, uh, people are realizing, listen, I'm not going to take my kids to these programs, these shows, they're, they're really, uh, you know, it's, you're, you're, it's bad education. You know, and, and Rick, Rick would, uh, Rick O'Berry, he would say like, you know, the, after the Coke, before the Coke came out, he had to explain to everybody what the problem was because you go to a dolphin show and, you know, they're there, their kids are laughing, the family's having fun. This is a highlight of their trip, but they don't see behind that veil. And now mm -hmm. he doesn't have to explain to people. Once people see the Coke, uh, you can unsee it. And then once you leave lips behind what's actually happening, it, uh, it makes you more aware. And I think that's, you know, that's, uh, that's why that film has such great successes in an entertaining film. There's one, you know, there's one part of the film that, you know, has a, a pretty strong, <laughs> that's got its reputation where they, you know, we, we snuck some cameras into the cove where they kill these animals. And it's pretty horrifying what they do and how they do it. And they've altered it a little bit since, but basically it's a, you know, it's a, it's a catastrophe what's going on there. It's still going on, but like I said, just not at the scale that it was happening at. But, you know, we work on these issues just about every day. You know, we have a nonprofit organization. Our, our 
you know, we're not just making films, we're trying to create social action. So like a, a normal Hollywood film, you know, they look at the audience's butts and seats, you know, we're, you know, you're $10 in a box of popcorn. And I think the, you know, a lot of the content of what they're doing sort of reflects that they're just trying to get popular entertainment out there. I mean, I, I like, I like a lot of the Hollywood movies. I'm, you know, a sucker for that stuff too, but I, we have a higher bar. I think, you know, we have, we have to make our films entertaining. And at the end of the day, we need to create social change. Otherwise, you know, that's why we're in business. So we have to use the, the same methods that they use, but we have to, you know, because we're nonprofit, our goal is not to make money. Ours is to create social change. And I think, you know, we, we hit it out of the park with the Cove and, after we did that film, I thought, well, how can we scale this up? How can we take on a bigger subject? And I went back and I, I, the second film we did was called Racing Extinction, which is about the worldwide extinction crisis. And, you know, to get at your point, like, you know, about working for Geographic and, and doing the movies, you know, where, you know, what what is it about a film? What is it about an article? What is it about a book? or anything that you do that creates social change? What's that tipping point? How many people do you need to create social change? And the science shows that it's not 51%, you know, which is what you would think, right? You know, that sure. it's when, if you're listening to Google it, it's called, um, it's called the Science of Social Change, Minority Rules. You'll find the article that I'm talking about. But uh, the scientists um, looking at the suffragette movement, civil rights movement in Arab Spring, they did a lot of computational uh, math to, to figure out that the number is 10% of the population, 100% committed to a social change is the tipping point for culture. And I asked this, uh, the lead author to send me the paper. I wanted to look at it and it was like a lot of math. And I, wasn't, I was never great at math, at least not at this kind of level that they're, they're talking about. I called him back. I said, can you give it to me in lay language? <laughs> I always do that when I'm you know, talking to, you know, these experts that you meet when you're doing a, a story. And I said, you know, t talk to me like I was a kindergartner, you know, like mm -hmm. I'm not down too much, but like, you know, don't use your jargon, you know, don't talk, you know, like I understand everything. Try to understand it, make, make a lay person understand it. And he said, yeah, about social change here, you know, it's like if you're trying to create steam, you'll never be able to do it unless you get water to a boiling point, 212 degrees. 10% of the population, 100% committed to social change is, the, is the, the boiling point for social change. Once you get to that boiling point, it's unstoppable. He said, but if you, if you don't do it, if you're stuck at 6% or 7%, it's like it said, you, you could take all the time in the, in the universe to try to get, to get to a boiling point, but it'll never get there. Yeah, yeah. it just won't boil. 10%. And so that sort of made sense too. When you look at that geographic, you know, 44 million people seeing the magazine, that's 50% of the culture. Um, and it, like, again, it's not just us, you know, doing one article. It's like, you know, when, in the advertising business for movies, you have to tell people about this movie's coming out six or seven times. And it's not like hitting with the same message six or seven times it has to be a, a billboard, your best friend, word of mouth. And they know too, that they, if they can't get that tipping point, unless they have, you, you hear about that movie six or seven times. So they'll have your, you know, the star of the movie on a, on a, a magazine, on a billboard. So you'll have, you know, they'll try to flood the, the world as much as possible with the noise of that ad. So you'll spend, they'll spend 200, $250 million on a big block, blockbuster movie to get, because that they're spending $400 million on because people won't come to it unless they spend that money. We mm -hmm. don't have 
we don't have that kind of money as with a documentary filmmaker. So we have to we have to create our own sort of advertising through guerrilla tactics. Um, you know, somebody just this morning was asking me through at Sundance. Sundance is going on right now, and somebody was asking about the success of the Game Changers. And the Game Changers has become in the first nine days it was on on Apple. It became the most um, watch documentary and most independent uh, watched independent film in their history in the first nine days wow. was on, was on Netflix uh, was well, still on Netflix it was, it's been on about three months and that film is about plant-based diet you know how you know some of the world's top athletes you know are thriving getting bigger and stronger and having more endurance and you know, quicker recovery times on a, on a whole foods plant-based diet not meat as people would expect and that film uh, in the first uh, two months searches worldwide for a plant-based diet went up 350% on Google trends. You know, that's one way that people look at like, what are people paying attention to? They look at Google trends that went up 350% the first, uh, maybe it might've been the first 60 days. I think it was the first 60 days. And I was told by somebody in Netflix that it became the most watched documentary in their history and it's still going up. You know, there's no signs of it slowing down. And, you know, it's, you know, just last week, you know, we were out to eat and my girlfriend starts talking to the people at this restaurant and because they were talking about, you know, they, they wanted to order vegan mm-hmm. and change their diet because of, you know, seeing the game changes. We went out to lunch the next day and the same thing happened to the couple next to us. And, you know, so anecdotally, Netflix doesn't release their numbers of, you know, exactly how many people have seen it but we know that you know tens of millions of people have seen this film and they're changing their diet and then and again you know we started out with this premise of like how do you reverse engineer a film okay we want people to adopt a a plant-based diet i'll tell you why because for your listeners who aren't predisposed to you know they think of a plant-based diet as for wimps or you know that that you're going to shrivel up and die um there's a i'm looking out at the bay now there's this a big plane circling low at just a, a few hundred feet above the road. So it's just like this caught my attention. It's kind of bizarre. It must be some sort of air uh, air show going on. It's, but it's really strange. I get scared to see a plane going that low. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway. yeah, maybe. Hopefully they're not looking for anybody. Yeah, exactly. Um, so anyway, that, that film, uh, to be big and strong, you don't, you know, all, all, protein originates from plants, you know, so yep. the world's strongest guy is Patrick Baboumian, you know, carried more weight further than anybody in history. He's a vegan, you know, Scott Jurek, the most accomplished ultra runner in the world, ran the Appalachian Trail 46 days, two, two marathons a day over 11,000 feet of uh, ascent and decline and um, uh, ascent and descent every day, uh, whole foods, plant-based diet. Uh, Tom Brady, most, you know, 80% whole food plant-based diet tennessee titans you know they had their best season ever when half the uh plant-based um and here's the thing you know if you look at the cultures in the world where people live the longest without chronic disease chronic diseases like heart disease diabetes prostate breast cancer those kinds of things they live uh the 95 percent of their calories come from a whole foods plant-based diet no 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 meat no dairy processed you know, let's say very little meat, very little uh, dairy. The you know, in these cultures, in these so-called blue zones, um, people are you know they're exercising naturally. They're getting uh, all the nutrition, mostly, vastly you know uh, from from plants, 
and it's actually the optimum nutrition for not only being a better athlete, probably, but also being thriving as a human being. Those people in the blue zones live on, you know, 10, 15 years longer than the rest of us without chronic disease. And, you know, there's the five blue zones are uh, a peninsula off the coast of uh, Costa Rica, Sardinia, Icaria, Greece. Icaria is, a, they call it the, the land where, the island where people forget to die, Okinawa, mm -hmm. land of the immortal, yeah. and Loma Linda, California, which is, you know, 60 miles east of where you are. Now, what's interesting about Loma Linda is about half the population are Seventh-day Adventists. By their religion, they take the Genesis uh, where, you know, God was alleged to say in the, in the Bible, you know, let the, the meat from the trees, uh, you know, let the, let the nuts and the, the fruit from the trees be your meat. Mm -hmm. uh, they take that to heart. So they're vegetarians. If you go to the Loma Linda market, which is their equivalent of Whole Foods, they don't have a meat counter. They have faux meats that are made from plant products. They have dairy, but they're pri pri uh, uh, primarily nut milks, you know, like oat. Yeah. You know, et cetera. They'll, they have dairy milks, but it's on the bottom shelf. Um, so this, you know, about half the population is, um, are vegetarians and they open up, now this is really interesting. The game changers, there's really a, a film about, you know, top athletes becoming vegan or vegetarian. But, uh, uh, I'm 62 years old and I want, I'm interested in living longer without the, the same disease, my relative diet. And it, Turns out in this area, this you know, uh, they, they started at the Loma Linda University Medical Center. Uh, they started a brain health and Alzheimer's clinic. About one out of three people in the country now are going to be affected by Alzheimer's. Either you're going to have it, your mate's going to have it, your parents yep. are taking care of somebody that has it. One out of three is on track to become the disease that overtakes heart diseases or number one disease. There's no no known cure for Alzheimer's. And they open up a brain health and an Alzheimer's clinic in Loma Linda, nobody came. Uh, they, they, had, they had to recruit outside the town, San Bernardino, which has the, had the first McDonald's. Now, mm -hmm. so if you look at Loma Linda, it's in San Bernardino, Interstate 5 bisects it. On one side, you have one of the unhealthiest populations in the entire state of California. And on the other side, you have one of the healthiest populations in the entire world. They're breathing the same air, they're drinking the same, yeah. everything's the same except their lifestyle. So uh, when we were at doing Game Changers, we were I was filming a, a doctor, Dr. Dino, heart disease, early stage, also, uh, sorry, early stage uh, diabetes, early stage prostate cancer, by extension breast cancer, with a whole foods plant-based diet and lifestyle. Basically, whole foods plant-based di diet with exercise, social support, meaning that people that have this disease will get around and talk. And there's a lot of good uh, science that shows that when people are connected, when you're talking to other people about stuff that's really important that matters to you, you feel better about your life. Even if it's, something, it's about something that's going wrong, you feel better. It's a, it's a basis for, for healing. There's, a, there's not just psychology, but physically we do better, about 60% better if we're connected to other people. So Dean Ornation knows this, and then he does meditation, so people can relax. So if you we reduce cortisone levels, get the stress out of your life, your life. All those four factors, those four pillars, make you live longer and feel better. Loma Linda, they figured out this a long time ago, but they used the Bible as their uh, their template. Um, 
so you know, like like Dean says in our film, the game changes. Said you know, genes are your disposition, but they don't have to be your fate. Mm-hmm. And Craig Venter, who's the guy who decrypted the human human genome, um, they tested about five hundred one genes, and they found out that with three months on this program that Dean, Dr. Dean Ornish has, they could you can turn on genes and turn off genes just by lifestyle. And now I'm working with Dean. Works just right down the street. He has the Preventative Medicine Research Institute. It's uh, and he's trying to reverse early stage Alzheimer's. And you know, it looks like it's working. About sixty percent of the people. With, there's only about fifteen people that have gone through the first first cohorts. Uh, but the progression of the disease is you, you get worse and worse and worse. You never get yes. better. And about sixty percent of the people are getting better. Some people quite a bit better. They're you know by these these cognitive tests that they give, they're, you know, they're doing anywhere from, um, you know, a few percentage points better to 30% better on cognitive tests over the course of 40 weeks. That's remarkable. Yeah. And, and in Loma Linda, like they have 3000 people that have come through the program right now, mostly from the surrounding areas outside of Loma Linda. And uh, they've only had 13 vegetarians. And again, this is a town that where you know, almost half of the people are vegetarian by their religion. So if you want to live longer, probably be a better athlete. And the, you know the, the game changes. There's one. There's one scene in there where we basically test sexual function of young mm-hmm. girls, where there's nothing wrong. You know, we do we do this uh, experiment where we we give college college age uh, athletes like the, the top of their field. We give them a whole uh, a whole foods plant based diet. We send them off to bed with something called a rigid skin. It's basically a, a device that they used to use to measure erectile dysfunction uh, in people before they discovered Viagra. And it's basically a, it's a computer that um, attaches these two rings, one on the base of your penis and one on the head of your penis and it measures nocturnal erections. And a guy will normally have about a half a dozen erections normally during the course of a night, not thinking about sex or anything. It's just blood going to an important organ. And, um, you know, comparing the uh, the, the vegan meal where guys went to bed with this device on to the meat-based meal where they went to bed, uh, their sexual function improved on average about 350%. Uh, wow. 350% better, longer erections, and about 10.4% bigger, harder erections. This is on one of the whole food plant diet. And, you know, your body just wants to heal. It just needs the right fuel. Yeah. And we're conditioned to thinking that meat, dairy is the right fuel and it's the stuff that's probably killing us it's the yeah. stuff that's heart disease that's because the thing that you know we look at diabetes strokes heart disease we tend to think of those as like that's a problem with uh circulation in the feed it's a problem with the heart it's a problem with the brain well these are circulation problems this is a plumbing problem it's like mm-hmm. if you the wrong thing in your it's like saying you have a a toilet problem and a sink problem and a shower problem that they're all different. Well, there's all a, a plumbing problem, right? Yep. And if yep. You're the pipes with the wrong fuel in the terms of a human body, you're, um, you're doing something that we're, we weren't probably designed to do. And I'm not saying we never ate, you know, we're not designed to eat meat. We, we probably, you know, we have eaten meat in the past, but is it the optimum diet? You know, is it the best thing for us to live? And it turns and out, was it the processed stuff that people eat today? you know, highly processed and, and, you know, yeah. not far from yeah. the source. Yeah, exactly. You know, this, you go to any Safeway and you look at, you know, I, I was, when I called you earlier and said I might be a little bit late, I was at the Safeway and, 
you know, my food is, you know, I'm at the vegetable counter, I'm getting, you know, the, the nut milks and the guy behind me, I'm looking at it and it's like, it's all processed food. He's got, you know, this, this thing of dairy and I'm thinking, and he's got, he's overweight. He's probably not healthy, you know, and yeah, we're, we're doing a lot of things wrong, but you know, with certainly with, with diet, a whole foods plant-based diet is going to get you on the right path. You know, it, it, it cures all these diseases and it looks like it's curing least early stage Alzheimer's right now. And I've got to be, you know, I've got to qualify that, that, that we're far from done with the testing. Dean's uh, and his people are far from done with the testing. He needs to have about a hundred people come through before you can sort of statistically say it's working, you know, but you know, when you have a really strong, when you're doing any kind of a test and you have a really strong signal, you don't have to have a, you know, either you get a lot of people to, and, and there's a small signal or you do a little amount of people and they're doing a big signal. It's like with, when we did the rigid scan test with the, the erections with these guys, but to have that dramatic of a, of a difference is pretty astounding. You know, it, it would be great to have a hundred people through and people say, well, why don't you do it? It's like, well, because it takes about $5 million to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Years and years. And, you know, I've been helping Dean raise money for the Alzheimer's project, you know, just as a, as a filmmaker. And it's tough to go to do this work to, you know, people say, well, well maybe it's not the diet so much, maybe it's the, the exercise, you know, but we know collectively it all works together. He knows it all works together. He's been for the last 48 years, he's been curing all these chronic diseases using this medicine. And he thinks that the, it's the same underlying mechanism that causes these problems that, you know, it's not, it's just manifest, the disease is being manifested in different people because of different things, you know, but like he says in that film, um, you know, genes are your disposition, but they don't have to be your fate. And that's great hope for, you know, somebody that, you know, might have the beginnings of a disease. If you look at your parents that have Alzheimer's and you might have the gene, maybe you can avoid that. If you start thinking early about, you know, these things that, you know, these, these lifestyle uh, changes, which kind of brings me back to what I was, I was saying, like, uh, you know, um, so we've done three films so far at the Cove, the game changers and uh, the film called racing extinction. And it's all about trying to reach that tipping point. Right. And yes. you know, we had like, and you know, somebody this morning was from asking like, how do you knock it out of the park with the game changer? I said, well, part of it is, you know, obviously it's, it's having a, a great film, but we had 42 executive producers on that film. These are people that basically gave the money or their name. We have like James Cameron, his wife, Susie, uh, who started a, a school called the Muse School, which is the first vegan school in America, Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, Novak, Dvojiak, the, you know, the top tennis player. We have these, this, this uh, Jackie Chan, like this, you know, this yeah. all of executive producers that between them probably have easily hundreds of millions of, of people. And then they all feel part of that film. They are part of that film. And when they start to put this out in their network, then uh, the wave that that's created is, you know, the equivalent of, you know, I think I put it up against any advertising campaign. And when, Certainly. Not, when the message is not, hey, this is a good entertaining film, but hey, there's something that could change your life. It's a different message. And I think that's one reason that the film, that film was successful. It's a good film. There's something in it for everybody. You know, even if you're not a top athlete, if you're like me, an older person that just wants to, to live longer and thrive without the diseases that, you know, affected our parents and our grandparents, there's a, there's a, a, a lot of hope in, it, in, in that, that, you, you know, you're not giving up anything, you're gaining something. Um, and what, one, one bit before we, if we talk about the, the new films, I just want to talk about the uh, racing extinction. 
you know, uh, I think 36 million people saw that film in 220 countries and territories the first day it came out. But we knew that it was going to be really hard to get, you know, 10% of the population to see a film, you know, even though it was in multiple languages on Discovery, it was across their networks for several days and, you know, all, you know, all, almost all their channels were taken over showing that film. We did these projection events um, on projection events we, we showed basically movies and, and pictures with music on big buildings the, the united nations and this is you know these aren't big you know, projections these were done with you know the secretary of general of the united nations permission we worked with you know uh, new york authorities we, we, we did projections on the united nations we did them on the empire state building and wow. so that's it's like at the end of the film we're doing these massive projections and we're they're talking about like tiling 50 IMAX projectors to make a single image you know you need like a million yeah. a million lumens of firepower to make an image to overpower the the ambient light in New York City on it to, to make an image on the Empire State Building these are big events and I remember a producer said it's going to cost too much money it's and we were doing it in, in the summer in New York and he said it you know it'll be a non-event because the people that are you need to reach are going to be at the Hamptons or over in Europe and uh, the, me the news media won't show up because it gets dark later and people can't afford overtime for the, the news media to show up. And I wanted to do it anyway because I realized that, you know, film, you can only penetrate a certain percentage of the market, even if it's a Marvel comic, you know. Yeah, totally. My, my son came to, you know, that event in, in New York. This is, you know, in August, about five years ago. And he said, Dad, there's people in the streets. And I said, well, of course. He said, but no, look over the side. There's like, you know, and I looked over the edge and it was like, it was like the Easter parade. It was like, we had stopped traffic on the on Fifth Avenue. Like it was Easter. Wow. Parade. Taxis were stopping in the middle of the street looking up. There's people stand, you know, sitting on cars. Sidewalks were just crowded with, with, you know, huge clumps of people, you know, tens of thousands of people. We had... 939 million media views by Thursday. We did some on Saturday night, so five days later, 939 media views, top ranking story on Facebook and Twitter for four, uh, for four days worldwide. We thought we can't get any more attention about, to, about endangered species than that. And then the Pope called. The Pope wanted, <laughs> the Pope wanted to, uh, uh, to us to do projections on the Vatican uh, during COP21 when world leaders were getting together to decide about climate change. And I think we had 225,000 people in St. Peter's Square. Uh, 600 media showed up. We had, just in the English language, we had four and a half billion media views within a week. You know, and now I think just about, you know, hopefully everybody that's listening to your program knows about an extinction crisis and climate change. And I think for a lot of people, you know, one of the first times they heard about a mass extinction event going on was probably through those projections or the film. You know, so, but again, we became part of this chorus of people that were, you know, bringing it to uh, not just the awareness to it, but then people realized, like, what can you do to, to mitigate that? And that's one reason we did the game changes because you might be thinking like, well, what, how, what can I do to change the atmosphere? You know, what can I, I'm just one person, but, you know, <coughs> and every person that, that uh, adopts a plant-based diet saves three and a half tons of carbon dioxide per year. They save four and a half, four and a half, 1,000 gallons of fresh water, uh, 9,000 square feet of wild land that doesn't have to be turned over to, you know, agricultural land to raise yes, crops yeah. that we're going to eat. Um, you know, the average person in America eats about 10,000 animals in their lifetime. 
So, I mean, if you care about, you know, if you like animals and then not to talk about, you know, not with soy sauce, but like if you just like to, you know, like animals and want to yeah. live killing them, you know, if you're 40 years old and you'll save 5,000 animals in your lifetime. And then what gives, what gives me tingles is when I think about like how many millions of people have seen the game changes so far. And it's only been about three months. There's, you know, just again, just anecdotally, the people that are around me, you know, that are, you know, traveling around or hear about this, like, oh, you know, my exercise class, the 35 women. Yes. Yeah. And we all went vegan after we saw the game changers. And you realize that, you know, not just that you're helping the, their lives, but there's a, the downstream effects of, you know, creating a film with the message. You're helping the climate, you're helping fresh water, you're helping people thrive. There's certainly a lot of animals that don't have to lead a life of suffering because, you know, we yeah. the film. So it's, uh, you know, it's exciting to do that kind of work. And now we're, we're trying to scale it up by doing several, you know, usually these films I talked about, the three of the films that we've done or the OPS have done, they've taken about four to five years to make. And now we have about a half a dozen films that we're working on right now. That Before I'm- we get into the, the new films, because I mean, one, one, I just have to mention one common thread I've noticed from your entire career here is the sort of how... Uh, your impact and your reach with people and the uh, art that you're creating and how much it's intertwined with new technology, you know, going from, uh, you know, the, the new equipment that you use to film the cove to uh, utilizing social platforms like Netflix, like Twitter, like Facebook to, to expand this reach is truly phenomenal. And it's, it's some, it's like you're going right in line with the technological developments uh, of today. And so, I can only imagine the impact that, you know, future films will have. And also, you know, listeners of this show know that uh, I'm, I'm actively involved in the solar industry. I own a company out here in California called Better Earth. And it's similar in, you know, intertwining technology for a social cause to, to try and mitigate some of these, uh, you know, existential threats, you know, through climate change or just pollution and, and all sorts of things. So, I mean, these new, I, I, I can't imagine what new technology you're going to utilize to to expand the footprint of of your new films, especially if you're talking about scaling an already extremely effective operation. Yeah, well, I mean, I think with everything what we're doing, you're right. I mean, we, I, I love technology. Um, you know, to, if you can create good out of it, you know. But when I, somebody was asking me about the, you know, the, the Cove, I think Rolling Stone said it was a cross between the Born Identity and Flipper. And, <laughs> Somebody was asking me about uh, racing extinction. And racing extinction, it's it's uh, it's kind of an extension. There's a lot of undercover work. We take a Tesla, and you know the Tesla S when this is when they first came out, we made it into like a bond car. You know, we have a, it's the first car in the world to have an electroluminescent paint job. We have a you know you can change the color of the car with a flick of a button. Uh, we had a forward-looking infrared camera that came out of the frunk. You know, wow, yes. Uh, so you can see carbon dioxide or methane in real time. Then we had a a 20,000 lumen projector that came out of the back window. We put a hatch there so that um, we could project what that camera, the FLIR camera was seeing uh, and projected on the skyscrapers. Um, We had disappearing license plates, of course, but you know, that film I said was like, it was like uh, watching too many James Bond movies and Jacques Cousteau specials as a child. Well, I mean, also, you know, you, you, as a photographer, you had the opportunity to, uh, to meet, interact with some of the greatest tech giants. I think you described them as, uh, 
as bit barons uh, in, in your work, you know, from Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, uh, Larry Elder, you know, so, some of these amazing tech giants as well, sort of, you know, I can imagine there's some inspiration from these guys and, and from the work that they did as well. Yeah, no, you know, again, the, the probably the key character was, you know, that affected me most personally was, was Jim Clark. But yeah, I mean, I, I spent, a, you know, you know, time with Bill Gates, Jobs, Larry Ellison, you know, and, you know, not, not just like photographing them, but like with Larry Ellison playing basketball on his boat, you know, <laughs> like a half, half basketball court on a 450 foot yacht. Um, yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of these guys are driven, you know, and I've, I've watched their, their evolution too. you know, uh, Bill Gates, when he was a, you know, he's a, about my age, I guess, but you know, when we were kids in these, you know, like the richest guy in the world, I, you know, he was just, he was driven, but he wasn't like a nice person, you know, smart. But now I, I see the transition that he's made and I'm not, you know, really that friendly with him. Uh, I was more friendly with his, uh, his partner, um, Paul Allen, you know, who was the, really the brains behind Microsoft and, and, when I met him, this is about, about 1986, he just had uh, Hodgkin's disease. And he had this sort of, this is Paul Allen, and he had this sort of reckoning where like, you know, he, he pulled out of out of Microsoft and he, you know, decided, well, what am I gonna do with my life? I'm gonna have fun with it. I'm still gonna invest, but I'm not gonna, he pulled back from that whole operation. Yeah. You know, still extremely wealthy, but you know, he had a, when I met him, he had a recording studio where he had like a really high tech state of the arts recording studio in Seattle. And he had like, you know, kids from his, his garage band in high school, you know, get together and they would just jam. That was all they do. They did just recording too, but they were like pretty much a jam band and he loved to play. And he would take, you know, all of his friends on a, you know, hop them on a 757 and take them to one of his boats and play. And, uh, you know, I met him with Jim and I were, were diving in the Galapagos and uh, Wolf Island. It's the second most northern island in the Galapagos. And we hung out with him for a while. And he was just diving just with a couple of his friends, you know. Um, but, you know, also seeing what was going on, this degradation. And uh, we ended up working with him. Um, back when we were doing uh, Racing Extinction, he got involved with the uh, the impact campaign for that film. And... Um, you know, helped us hit it out of the park, you know, so you, you make a film, but you need a, you need a, a, a media campaign. And he put the money and the effort and his talent behind that campaign and really blew it out of the water for us. Um, you know, we, they worked on legislation to prevent, you know, some of the most endangered species coming through the West, Western coast ports. And uh, he was instrumental and, um, blocking some of the loopholes, closing up the last of the loopholes that allowed endangered species to come through U.S. ports. That was all him and his organization. So, you know, with, with all these films, we, we try to partner. You know, we still work on these issues ourselves, but, um, you know, trying to find like-minded people that, uh, you know, people, it's, it's, you know, we, we have a lot of donations from smaller donors, but people like Paul Allen and Jeff Skoll, who runs Participant, who did the media campaign for the educational campaign for um, the Cove, helped us hit it out of the park. You know, so it's, it's, it's a, again, it's kind of a, 
a consortium of, you know, we have you know, millions of people on social media, but we also have these, these tech barons, the bit barons that, you know, I think it was Andrew Carnegie said that to die with a lot of money is to die with great shame. And I think that's what's going on with Bill right now too, Bill, Bill Gates, is that they realize that, okay, you have $50 million, $100 million. What the hell are you going to do with it? You know, and so yeah, I think people with, with great wealth, you know, they have a responsibility. We all, we all have a responsibility, I think, whether we take it on or not, to try to leave the world a little bit better place than we found it. In fact, you know, I, I'm working on this other film right now with the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu, two great spiritual leaders with different religions, but they got together and, and, and Dharamsala and our team filmed them uh, trying to figure out, like, what's wrong with people what's wrong with our culture what's wrong with our lives that we feel so disconnected and it goes back to i think what a lot of people discover is that if you're not yeah you know it's also related to maslow's hierarchy of needs you know the first need is that you know subsistence you know you got to have a roof over your head it's hard to think about bigger things unless you're um you have your safety concerned but then at the very top levels is um is uh, is you know this this progression where you you feel like you want to give something back. That's the the top level, of self actualization. And I think people like like Bill Gates, like Paul Allen, the people at the top of the field that understand like okay, I can only make you know there's only so much happiness you're going to get out of making wealth you want to give something back that's probably why you're in the solar business because you realize that you can make a business of it but at the, at the what's really motivating you is that you want to try to live make the world a little bit better place and the difference between maybe you and somebody else that hasn't figured that out is that you wake up in the morning and there's not enough hours in the day so i mean it's you know 70 percent of people in america i was just reading about uh, don't just dislike their, their job they hate their job and I think if once you find your calling that you you actually love what you're doing, then you're never working again. You know, it's it's like you're you're driven to this uh, to try to achieve this higher goal. And I think you know what we're trying to do with this film with the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu is show that this is why we're so screwed up. This is why if if you don't feel good, it's because you're not. You know, the only thing that's going to give you true joy, you know, you'll get happiness out of money, power, sex, fame. But it's trans. Once you reach that, it, like it evaporates it doesn't get it doesn't make you feel any better it doesn't give you pure joy what gives you pure joy is doing what you love to do um so th that's what that film's about is like getting you know sort of a a realignment for the soul of, of civilization you know because it's universal you don't have to be the dalai lama or, or, a, or a catholic or a, you know an archbishop like desmond tutu to discover these things you can do it no matter what you're doing, you can, and it could be in your interactions in the day. It could be looking people in the eyes that you love and, you know, figuring out what's really going on with you and them and, you know, creating a sense of community. Um, that's what makes us feel good. That makes us feel happy to go back to the name of your podcast too. It's like, you know, all the education in the world won't give you true joy unless you discover at whatever age, what it is that makes you happy and, makes other people happy because that's what makes us human it's it's almost impossible to feel good about yourself unless you're actively involved with the pursuit of connecting other people to this higher goal of 
you know, the things that connect us, that make us really feel good. And that's, you know, uh, that's why we choose the films that we do. That's why we, you know, we're more interested in, in what comes after the film than, you know, the money and the popcorn that we sell during the film. It's really about this end goal. Um, and, you know, I discovered that, I was lucky enough to discover it early on as a photographer. And I got distracted, you know, mid-career, I think, when I, uh, I was doing some stuff for Geographic that, you know, I feel proud of uh, in terms of the way I filmed it, but like the subject matter wasn't giving me back the kind of, you know, feeling I did like when I was doing stuff like on garbage or these, these bigger assignments that, um, you know, where I could tap into stuff that was truly important for culture. But yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty remarkable uh, again to just sort of see the arc of, of, you know, your career and your social impact go hand in hand with, you know, the, like you'd think, having an impact on 44 million people with photographs, you know, that's such a massive uh, percentage of the culture at the time, but to have what you describe in there is billions of views casting uh, your work onto this, you know, using crazy new technology to cast it on the side of buildings. So you, you know, onto the Vatican doing, having such a massive impact, where do you see, you know, your future projects? If you're doing a project, uh, especially one about, you know, uh, people achieving that self-actualization, people uh, getting to, uh, you know, sort of mending the issues of our social structure and identifying the problems in our society today. Uh, you know, what, what further, you know, what, what, uh, what outcome would you like to see from that? Do you think you can hit the boiling point with some of these things and see the, you know, what kind of outcome would come on the other side? Well, I mean, yeah, we're, again, we're, we're, we have about a half a dozen projects right now that I'm, I'm not, necessarily directing all of them and sort of help guiding them and I think that's my job right now is to try to figure out how do you uh, extend it you know the, what the goals that our team has been able to do and and be able to you know implement implant that on other people so you know I'm working with other first-time directors uh, other projects that I'm not I'm, you know EP executive producing as opposed to directing I'll go in the field and get people um, you know going I you know I've been working with cinematographers for some of them for you know 12 years now so we have like a language that we use and I can if I can incubate you know those those people <laughs> on, the, on the projects then it's not you know it's no longer about me and my little team it's really about how do you expand this universe so that you have uh, several teams going out there and doing this this similar kind of work you know trying to scale it up and, you know, I think that's what I think any, you know, any good CEO will try to do is try to Certainly. Make, make themselves obsolete. You know? Yeah. It's like Steve Jobs, you know, uh, at Apple, uh, he was the critical element, you know, Apple almost went out of business until they had to bring him back in. And uh, he essentially did that with the remainder of his career, which was make Apple the business that is today with, you know, more money in the bank than the U S government. And uh, you know, it's perpetually successful. Well, I've got more money than the U.S. government because <laughs> I guess if you have one dollar, then you do. Yes, yeah, correct. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's it's amazing, and and also just to to note, I mean, I mean, the trends between technology and the social impact. I think it's it's uh, now is such a unique time because with the state of technology today, unlike ever before in human history, more people are able to achieve that top tier of the Maslow's hierarchy of need that 
self-actualization and look at, uh, you know, what kind of impact they could have. I think that wasn't really possible up until now because more people were still, you know, hovering down in the middle or uh, somewhere about there and not able to dedicate themselves to, you know, work for the sake of work for the benefit of others. Yeah. I mean, one of the, the seminal events in my life was actually when I was, I was filming uh, the information revolution story for national geographic. I was filming over at Bill Gates's office and it wasn't about meeting Bill Gates at that point. I had done that, but it, it was, uh, he had this guy working with him, Nathan Marivold, who he had set up in the corner office next to him at the, uh, the Redmond offices. And, um, he implanted he, Bill bought uh, Microsoft, uh, bought his company, Nathan Merrill's company. And he's installed um, Nathan as kind of a, a Merlin to look into the future, to figure out where technology was going to be in the next five to 10 years and to try to figure out the business plan for those goals. And Nathan sort of, you know, between his office and Bill's, they had uh, about 10 or 12 TVs on different channels. Without the sound, is like in a glass wall and there were different channels and i remember this is back in 1993 you go to the the tv store they'll have like one channel yeah, so well, yeah. they were like different channel i said why did why do you do that and he says well it's to remind bill and i and every other team that in the future once fiber optic comes into the home you'll be able to have 500 channels of television and you know back then that was like wow mind-blowing so I, I did a picture of that and that became my most famous picture i, I created a a television of a room with 500 TVs and different screens going on. But he also explained to me, like, again, 1993, he said that, you know, information has always been key to cult, to, to our civilization. He said, and he basically went onto a whiteboard and showed me that how expensive bits were, how expensive information was. So, you know, back in the, uh, the Gutenberg Bible time, you know, the first printed Bibles, they, you know, it was very expensive to make a Bible, but then they, they became a printing press. Then more people had access, there was more Bibles, more people had access to it. And that created an information wealth because back then it was only the kings and the educated, the nobility that had that ability to have access to these very rare Bibles, right? And then, you know, he basically drew a line going through the information age and that he said, you know, in the, in the very, you know, this is where we're at now. He said, in the very near future, telephone calls will be so cheap that they'll be free. Like mm -hmm. uh, Skype. Yep. Um, any kid with a laptop will have the same uh, publishing potential as a writer for the New York Times. And I look at you know the blog or maybe a good podcast that you do. Be, and it's true. I mean, everything he said came to pass. And all, all wealthy people or successful people are trying to do is trying to figure out where you either say where are we going or where do we need to be and you create that future knowing that you can see a, you can glimpse into the it's almost like you know you can you know predict the lottery winner by thinking a little bit ahead of the curve and that's all bill gates does paul allen nathan marivold jim clark you know probably plenty of women out there doing the same kinds of things you know what i'm saying it's just that people yeah, are looking, certainly the science fiction writers that's all they're doing they're, they're looking you know where we're at now and trying to project project a future and you can project it for the good you know or you can project it for your personal wealth but again i would subscribe to anybody out there listening that okay personal wealth is important but like how much do you really need how much yeah. is, what, what's, you know the the difference between a, a rickshaw di driver and 
in India and a person making, you know, $80,000 a year in the U.S., there's about the same amount of happiness. And the, and the difference between, you know, $70,000 a year and $225,000 a year, slight increase in, in, in happiness, but it's not usually worth the time it's expense, you know, away from your family and doing the things you really love to do because you're not pursuing joy. You're pursuing this sort of temporary fiction of what makes us happy. So, I mean, the earlier you can in your career figure that out, you know, then you don't have to be on your deathbed and playing coulda, woulda, shoulda, and being yeah. owning, you know, what, what I do with my life, how did I waste it? You can think about that right now and, and get started. Well, uh, Louis, I, I can't thank you enough for this time here today. I, I, we, we blew way by our, our uh, projected uh, allotment of time there, and I know you have a, a hard cutoff here. So thank you again. This conversation has been extremely informative and enlightening. Do you have any last words you want to leave with the audience or listeners? No, just, uh, you know, seize the day, you know, this is, uh, you know, don't postpone joy. <laughs> Absolutely. I love that. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed that episode, please hit the subscribe button and follow us on Instagram and Twitter. You can find us on Twitter at KWC pod on Instagram at knowledge without college podcast. You can find me Patrick Butler at Patrick Butler zero zero on Instagram and Twitter. I encourage you to send over any feedback you have. If there's any guests you'd like to hear on the show, any topics you'd want to hear discussed. I want to know about it. I want to hear your feedback and opinions. So please, Help me make this a better experience for you. And I look forward to hearing from you. Have an excellent day and thanks for listening.